Thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen. Praise God. Amen. Next Sunday, we will be focusing on healing broken relationships. And uh, Brother Jason Carr, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist that will be with us speaking next Sunday on this important subject. But today, we're excited that uh, we're going to be uh, uh, learning about recovering from disappointment and tragedy. And we're so glad that uh, Brother David Keller is uh, with us this week to minister the word of the Lord. And uh, <clears throat> amen. And uh, you're certainly in for a treat today. Brother Keller is, for those that don't, don't know, he is my wife's brother. And uh, he uh, resides in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But he is with us as a consultant one week every other month and uh, to help us as a church stay focused, target organized, and uh, working towards the objective of growing the kingdom of God here in this region. I'm so thankful uh, that Brother Keller is here with us today, and Brother David is going to minister the word of the Lord. I want you to open your heart to receive what God has for us today. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the word of God? Praise the Lord, everybody. Are you all thankful to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. Thankful for uh, all of you that are here today. And uh, Life Church wouldn't be here without all of you. And we're so glad for that. As you're turning in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 30, and then also Job, chapter number 42. Brother Chris, if you could help me out here on the platform, please, that'd be great, on these monitors. And um, we, uh, we're in the middle of a series, so we're going to talk about recovery today. Isn't, the, isn't this music team great and, and, and worship team, are we thankful for them ushering us into the presence of God? Amen. All right. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter number 30, And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. Everybody say, recover all. Everybody say, recover all. All right. Before we go any further, I want to give honor to our pastor and his wife. Are we thankful for Pastor and Sister Brown? Amen. Job chapter number 42, we'll read two verses in your hearing. Verse 10 and verse 12. The Bible says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friend. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Verse 12 says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. How many believe it's time for a comeback? 
do you, do you believe it's possible that everything the enemy has stole from you, you can recover all of it? All of it. Put your Bibles down, high five three people and tell them you can recover. Amen. As you're seated, I want to preach today on this subject, the ingredients of a comeback. The ingredients of a comeback. One of the most difficult things to manage in your life is what do you do when you fall? Regardless of who or what caused the fall, did you trip yourself up? Did someone push you down? How did you fall? The bottom line is, what do you do after? When life knocks you down. Whether you have instigated the fall in your own right and by your own actions or if someone else has been the catalyst for the failure in your life. Let's, let's just get this out of the way before we go any further today, it's important to know that your life is not over today. The game doesn't stop just because you bruised your arm or you skinned your knee, because someone came along and tackled you before you crossed the touchdown line. Just because you're down today doesn't mean that you're going to be down always. Trouble don't last always, sir, ma'am, but someday you're going to be back on top again. Do you believe that? It's obvious you may feel pain right now. No doubt in a congregation this size, there are people in this room who feel an immense amount of pain right now. But today, the realization will come to you that the fight is not over just because I fell down in the first round. The game is not over because... I was tackled and encountered an obstacle. Many of you today have been hurt. You're in pain and today you're sitting on the sidelines licking your wounds when in reality it's time for you to get back up and get back in the game. You can recover. 
touch somebody and tell them you can recover. Today, I'm speaking to people that are on a winning streak. There's folks in here, it's been so long since you've had a loss, you forget what losing feels like. Has anybody ever had life just cold cock? Can I tell you that there is no loss, no loss that will hit you any harder than a loss that comes after you've been on a winning streak. Someone like Brother Steele was talking to us a few minutes ago. Maybe you, you, you had success in your career. And you've achieved promotion after promotion after promotion and pow, you're fired from your job. Maybe you've had success in starting a business and you've attained contract after contract and making money hand over fist and pow, you lose the big contract and everything falls apart. You've been married 20 years, 25 years and pow, Divorce papers in the mail. My kids, my kids are the greatest. They're straight A, straight A students. And pow, you get a phone call in the middle of the night. Can you come bail me out of jail? Making money, finances, taking care of your finances. And pow, you have a sickness that causes you to file bankruptcy. It's lost. There's no loss that hurts as bad as a loss that comes on the end of a long winning streak. Some folks also in here today, you've had a losing streak so long you forgot what winning feels like. But I've come to preach to you today, I don't care how long you've been losing, it's comeback time. Can I preach for a little while today? Making a comeback, getting up off the mat, climbing from the bottom is a choice that you have to make in your mind. Read in 1 Samuel chapter 30 the story of David at Ziklag. I'm going to give it to you in a real small nutshell here and then we're going to go on. But David and his army had been away at battle. They'd been conquering. David and his army were on a winning streak. They had been pillaging and plundering enemies. They were the victors. They were the great conquerors. They come home one day and off in the distance. They see smoke billowing, billowing out of their village and they return only to find that their hometown of Ziklag is burning to the ground. Upon further investigation at their arrival, they discover that their wives and their children had been taken captive. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 30 verse 18, 
And David inquired at the Lord saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them. And without fail, you shall recover all. Amen. I've come to preach to somebody today before we go any further that it's time to get up off the mat. It's time to get up off the bottom. Get back in the game. Go after everything that God promised you and recover everything that was stolen from you. on to find in the story that David indeed recovered all. Everybody say all. No, 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 no. I, I need somebody that is on the bottom. I need somebody that has lost everything. I need somebody that knows what it feels like to not have a dollar in the bank or anybody to call and talk to. I need somebody to scream, I'm going to recover all today. It doesn't matter how much has been taken from me. It doesn't matter how much has been stolen from me. I'm going after it. I'm getting it back. I will recover all. Preaching to people, you've lost your innocence. You've lost your marriage, your family, lost your job, future, finances, career. But you're coming back. Deuteronomy, I love this verse of scripture. Deuteronomy chapter number 30, verse 19. The Bible says, I call heaven and earth to, re to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. You have a choice to make today, sir. You have a choice to make today, ma'am. Are you going to be a victim the rest of your life and put the victim mentality on future generations or will you break the curse and come back? Climb on top. You have a choice. Okay. How, how are broken worlds rebuilt? Where do any of us begin? How do we come back? You may be saying, preacher, I, I still have my career. I still have my family, my finances, and children are acting just fine. And I say to you, sir, ma'am, you're probably correct. But you've got to understand that I'm not preaching to what I see on the outside of people only today, but I'm speaking to the inside of folks this afternoon. 
I'm speaking to the heart of the individual that you've got to make a comeback in your spirit before massive loss takes place in your life. I'm preaching to people right now that you look great, you're driving great, you're living great, you're laughing great, you're smiling great today, but it is a facade because you know that on the inside of you, you are falling apart, you are cracking, the foundation is crumbling, but I'm giving you an opportunity today to expose your heart to a Savior and let him put you together on the inside so you don't have to lose everything before it's too late. My, my initial thought is to go back to the starting point of all broken world choices, and that's the inner being. The private world, the heart, the core of the person that Jeremiah said was deceitful and beyond full comprehension. But why, why do we go there? Because undoubtedly this is where all biblical writers start. They assess the performance of a person or the performance of a body of people by saying something first about the condition of the heart when they record and analyze the broken world choices of individuals throughout Scripture and and nations. Favorite scriptural adjectives for describing the heart when personal worlds are breaking are phrases such as stiff-necked, resistant, darkened, blinded, afflicted, and rebellious. The Bible speaks of the hardened heart of the Egyptian Pharaoh, the cold hearts of the people of Israel and the violated or penetrated heart of Judas. On the other hand, when the writers speak of someone who has moved into the rebuilding phase of their lives, the adjectives describing the heart turn to things such as broken, turned back, clean, undivided, contrite, and new. David, the man who constantly struggled with deceit and personal integrity, said to his son Solomon as he pointed his son to the future, he said, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and he understands every motive behind the thoughts. In a few words, David puts the issues of faith into a capsule. We have a God whose view of us begins with the heart. And we are called to serve him beginning from the heart. For you've got to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that the heart is always behind the mind. It produces the motives behind your thoughts. And out of all of that come the actions that break a personal world or they rebuild a personal world. Two extreme heart conditions are a distinct displeasure to God. Both attract his anger and judgment. In their extremes, these hearts are bound by evil. One extreme is typified by the personal worlds of the people of the earliest civilization recorded in Scripture. Genesis chapter number 6 says this, 
the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. and That every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil all of the time. This is a brief description of people whose hearts have become so oriented toward the production of evil that nothing of any value could be seen in them. These people apparently made no attempt at even a pretense of good. This unbelievably bad condition was what was the prelude to the flood of judgment from which only Noah and his family had escaped. At the other extreme is the heart that is absorbed in organized religion with the hope of mounting an impressive performance of human goodness designed to placate God and to intimidate people. No one seems to have known this condition better than Paul, for Paul was once a Pharisee. He had been numbered among those for whom outward appearance was almost everything. Robes and gestures, routines, verbiage, intellectual life from the tiniest detail to the most flamboyant ceremonies. The Pharisee's life was one big attempt to make an impression for God, to make an impression for one another, and to make an impression on the world in general. But in what order? I think one of the sources of Paul's overwhelming joy in his Christian faith was his sense of being freed from a formally bound heart. Everybody say a bound heart. Everybody say a bound heart. In earlier days, impression making had meant at least three things. First, always living with the inner realization that Paul wasn't measuring up to what he had set as external standards and Second, covering up substandard feelings, thoughts, and desires when he was with others so that he wouldn't be found to be the imperfect person that he really was. And finally, the third condition, the Pharisee style must have meant looking out in suspicion and accusation to pinpoint what was wrong with everybody else, what was wrong with other people. Only in that way could some sense of superiority and false sense of security be maintained and When Paul chose to follow Christ, all of that discomfort and deformity in his bound up heart was suddenly gone. No wonder Paul was exasperated with the Galatians when they showed no signs of, when they showed, I'm sorry, signs of wanting to go back to the condition of bound hearts and bound lives. And he wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. A broken world will never be rebuilt until we learn this principle of the unbound heart. Your heart must be unwrapped and it must be exposed to the light. I want to preach to somebody today that you've walked into a place where you can expose your heart to a loving God. You can expose your heart to a loving pastor. You can expose your heart to a loving body of people. This is a place where you can take the hurt. You can take 
take the pain. You can take the disappointment. You can take the discouragement. You can take it all and lay it on an altar and expose your heart to the master. got to understand that when you expose your heart, the light will show unattractive evil. But then something wonderful will happen. The love of God will be free to flood into the dark recesses and the recovery process will begin. I want to, we're not shouting right now. We may shout it a little bit. But I feel the Holy Ghost telling me to tell somebody that you've walked into an environment where the cross is very real and the blood is still flowing and love wins every time. You've got to take a risk to love again. You've got to take a risk, tear down the walls and let the love of Christ flow freely in your heart. Lift our hands and love the Lord all over this place. The Bible calls the unbinding process repentance. Everybody say repentance. It's an old word and it's... uh, normally associated with revivalistic religions. And so as a result, quite frankly, many people find the word repentance repugnant. But as some say, they they throw the baby out with the bathwater when this is the case. They do not understand that behind An oft misunderstood word is an action that must precede true recovery. I feel the Holy Ghost in here right now. Repentance is a Middle Eastern word and it describes the act of turning around when people realize they've been going in the wrong direction. It was most likely used in its origin in non-religious settings, such as when a traveler is asking directions of someone who knows the countryside and was informed that he had taken the wrong road and was moving away and not toward his destination. If such a conversation were taking place in the ancient Middle East, it would be appropriate for the local to say to the traveler, you're going to have to repent and head for that road. You've got to turn around. You've got to change direction. And so the practical word repent became useful to describe a moral and spiritual act also. It's used by Old Testament prophets and then John the baptizer and Jesus and finally the apostles. It meant to change the direction in which the heart was naturally inclined. John the baptizer made repentance a very real theme of every one of his public talks. He spoke of repentance that takes place first in the heart 
and then in the moral performance patterns of the individual. The latter he called the fruits of repentance. Okay? When repentant men and women stepped forward and said, what kind of fruits are you talking about? He would speak to them about their clear concern for the poor, their renunciation of violence, and their commitment to justice. These things, he said, would clearly indicate that something in their freed up heart was different. talk about one that Pentecostals love. When the people heard Peter's famous sermon on the streets of Jerusalem, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. A graphic description of people coming to insight about their bound up private worlds. What shall we do was the question that was asked. Preachers said to them, repent. Change direction. The act of repentance is actually a gift from God in at least two ways. Is everybody all right today? First, repentance is a gift in the sense that insight into our broken world needs and awareness that something has to change is undoubtedly, pay attention now, It is un- the need for change is undoubtedly initiated By the Spirit of God. Listen to me Pentecostals. This is the real reason for the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not your free get into heaven ticket. The Holy Ghost isn't something if I talk in tongues a little while. I'm going to automatically make it through the pearly gates. And dance on streets of gold. The Holy Ghost is designed to cut through your bound up heart, prick you and instigate a reconciliation process between you and your creator. Need and and, and need and change are issues we simply would not see, we wouldn't appreciate on our own if we did not have the Holy Ghost. Jesus said that this was the task of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, he said the Holy Ghost will convict, it will point out sin, it will stimulate insight, and then it will stimulate a desire to change. What I'm telling you today is that recovery is not winning the lottery. Recovery isn't something that happens in 15 minutes while you're shouting around a Pentecostal altar. But recovery is a choice that you have to make every day. I will not be the victim. This pain will not be my identity. I will come back. I will be a victor. I am more than a conqueror. And I will live on top again. It's a choice. This is, this is not a pleasant aspect of God's activity in us, but it is necessary. Similarly, physical pain is not pleasant when it, when it sends a message to tell our body that something is wrong. But you see, if we didn't have pain in our bodies, then our, 
pain signals danger to our body. And it lets us know that something has to happen. Treatment has to take place before recovery can begin. Without God's Spirit convicting when evil is on the loose on the inside of us, we would be vulnerable to every hostile element that there is, physical and spiritual. When pain speaks, we stop doing what we're doing or we immediately seek to rectify whatever it is that is causing discomfort. My goal today is to cause pain in your spirit. I want to bring the pain that is in you to the top. As Pastor, you hit the nail on the head. Pain that is deep. Pain that is buried. Pain that you've ignored. But the reality is that the pain is still there. And today, I want you to feel the pain again. Because it's only then that you will take corrective course. It's all right, Pastor. When the Spirit of God speaks, we repent. We renounce what we are doing or thinking and choose to replace our evil behavior with godly behavior. Second, the second gift of repentance is this. It is a gift in the sense that God has made it possible. Now watch this. And this is the greatest gift. God has made it possible for us to change direction from a broken world course that we are on. See, I'm dealing with the victim mentality today. That as long, can I talk to you for just a moment? That as long as you cite the pain, the reason for the pain in your life, and you make that your identity, well, this happened to me, this is who I am. That happened to me, this is who I am. You will always live in a broken world. You will never recover You will never reclaim everything that God has for you, every promise, the future, the destiny, the purpose that he has, as long as you play the victim. Well, preacher, you don't know what happened to me. Guess what, saint? You don't know what happened to me. Well, preacher, you don't know the pain and the darkness that I've been through. Look at this preacher. You don't know the pain and the darkness that I've been through. But I made a choice a long time ago that I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to let them rule my emotions one more day. Today, God's going to set somebody free from the person that abused you sexually. God's going to set somebody free from the rape, from the abortion, from the abuse. He's going to set you free. You don't have to stay under that bondage. Not one more day. Let's clap our hands to the Lord right now. 
It's important to understand that repentance is not a one-time act. But it is a spiritual lifestyle. It's all right, Pastor. To live in a constant state of repentance is to acknowledge that the heart is always ready to drift into wrong directions and must constantly be jerked. My emotions, my thoughts, my actions, I am human. They must always be jerked back into control. You know the dangerous part of playing the victim is you are justified in all of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You will always find sympathetic people to feel sorry for you, and I'm one of them. I will always feel sorry for you. But the dangerous part is, as long as you've got sympathizers, we're going to talk about it here in a little bit, but as long as you've got sympathizers, your emotions have no control. They always seek the river of emotion, always seeks a bank that it can overflow. When in reality, you've got to, you've got to practice self-discipline. I've got to jerk my thoughts back into accordance with the Word of God. I've got to bring my actions and my behavior to a place that pleases Christ. I've, I've got to walk a path that is pleasing to the Master. And if I don't, my emotions will rule my life and I'll never see, I will never see everything that God has for me. I will always be the victim and never the victor. Brokenness, everybody say brokenness, implies an acceptance of full responsibility for what has happened, a genuine sorrow reflecting an awareness that one has grieved God and those who have been affected by my broken world choices. We see indications of those kind of emotion and grief in the prostitute who kneeled at Jesus' feet. I want you to listen carefully now. We're fixing to preach. The prostitute kneeled at Jesus' feet and she washed his feet with her tears. Simon, who was Jesus' host that day, took one look at the weeping woman and said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. He would know what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The irony, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jesus knew exactly who and what kind of person she was. Simon did not realize that Jesus was most drawn to this kind of person. He's most drawn to the broken kind. A study of the people with whom Jesus spent most of his time and gave his compassion might suggest that he was not as concerned about what one had done in the past or about uh, as about whether or not there was expressed brokenness in the present. What he's concerned about is not your past. He's, he doesn't care about what you did last night or last week or last month. What he wants to know is how broken will you be today? The woman had apparently committed all sort of 
sorts of immoral acts, but, but this woman was broken. Simon had committed nothing in life that his generation thought worthy of an accusation, but his heart was proud, and Simon's heart was stiff. And it was Simon who received a stunning, an embarrassing rebuke from the master. But it was the prostitute that received forgiveness for her sin. Resistance to brokenness caused Paul to be harsh in his critique of the Corinthian church. Paul's own cry of brokenness in Romans 7 says, What a wretched man I am and who will rescue me from this body of death. He models what individuals do as they come to inside and realize that their performance is beneath the standards of God. Most outstanding men and women in the Bible seem to have had some sort of experience with brokenness. In fact, it seems to be an absolute essential before God is willing to work with anybody. Having read and reread their biographies, I've come to, to the conclusion that we probably would have disqualified the majority of the people that Jesus worked with for Christian leadership if they came into our churches today. Let me prove it to you. Had we lived in Joseph's lifetime, we would have seen Joseph as a convicted rapist. Jacob would have been set aside as having a serious character defect in the area of truthfulness. David would have been considered a poor manager of his home, an adulterer and a murderer. Moses would have been a murderer. Simon Peter was a coward. And Paul was a volatile enemy of the church, probably not to be trusted, let alone listened to. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, religious folks make me nervous. They walk around with an air of perfection. They gossip and point out the faults in everybody else. And all the while, while they're pointing out faults, I'm wondering, what is it that you're hiding? I'm going to preach now. I said religious people make me nervous. They walk around with an air of perfection and they're pointing their finger at everybody else. When in reality, I'm going to point my finger at the spirit of religion today and say, Jesus doesn't care about your good deeds. He cares about your brokenness. He cares about your exposed heart. He cares how much you're willing to repent. How broken can you be today before him? I feel so sorry for perfect people. Oh, I do. I feel sorry for them. Because they're so out of touch with the human condition. They, they don't know how to talk real. All of the attention is on them all of the time. Everything is about them. They Religious people know how to play the victim better than anybody I've ever seen. Stop trying to paint yourself as a perfect person. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. He knows you're not perfect. You know you're not perfect. And everybody else knows you're not perfect. 
So stop trying to be something that God never intended for you to be and break yourself before him and recover everything that he has. Touch somebody and tell them it's comeback time. Come on, touch somebody and tell them it's comeback time. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the most stunning reality that hits a person that has lost everything is the loss of primary function. They ask themselves the question, well, what what value do I have to anybody? What can I do? I I don't have any value to anybody. I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm confused. I I lost my job. I lost my business. I lost my money. I lost my car. I lost my house. I lost my marriage. I lost my family. I lost my future. I lost my purpose. I lost my sense of destiny. What, What good am I to anybody anymore? Has anybody ever been there? Oh, come on. I just talked about perfect people. And y'all sit there like, I ain't ever lost anything. Has anybody ever been there? When, when, when you've lost everything. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, maybe you were. Maybe you were young and you lost your virginity by a rapist. Maybe you had an abortion and you lost your dignity. Maybe you're married and you lost your job and you can't provide for your family. Maybe maybe you lost your innocence at the hands of an abuser. Maybe you lost your sense of dignity and self-esteem and pride and, and self-worth at the, at the words of a verbal abuser and psychological controller. But I've come to tell you. I've come to preach to somebody today that just, just as this was burning, are you ready to preach now? Just as this had to be burning in the mind of Job, I've lost everything. I've lost my children. I've lost my homes. I've lost my family. I've lost my cattle. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my livestock. I've lost my health. The Bible says that the Lord started to turn the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. What was the captivity of Job? It was simply this. The captivity of Job was the fact that he had lost everything. Has anybody ever been there when you've lost everything? You've lost your pride. You've lost your money. You've lost your worth. You've lost your self-esteem. Has anybody ever been there? You ought to wave your hand at me. If you've ever been on the bottom, if you've ever been in the dark middle of the night and not known which way to turn, you ought to shout right now because you're fixing to come back. You're fixing to come up. If you're on the bottom, you don't have to stay there. If you've lost everything, you're going to recover everything. There's not a devil in hell big enough. There's not a giant big enough that can stop you from recovering all. I need some hungry folks in the house today. Oh yeah. I need some hungry folks in the house today. 
I need some hungry folk. Can I preach for a little while here? I'll be done here in just a minute. I said I need some hungry folks in the house today. Some folks that knows what it's like to have too much month left at the end of the money. Some folks that knows what it's like to not have enough money to put food in your fridge and on your table. You may not be there right now. Boy, there's so much pride in here. Uh-huh. Well, I can't, I can't show myself. Somebody's going to know that I'm in debt. Somebody's going to, you know what? I want you to look at this preacher right here. You pro- everybody in this place probably has their act together, together better than me. I need some folks that are hungry for change. If you're not hungry for change, I'm going to put this mic down and I'm going to walk back and I'm going to fly back to the East Coast to where it's cold. And I would say live happily ever after, but I hate the snow. But I need some hungry folks in the house today. Some folks that will say, I'm tired. I'm in the hog pit. I'm tired of filling my belly with husk that the swine did eat. I'm tired of rolling around in this hog pen. Help me out here. I'm tired of being laughing stock of my family. I'm tired of being the victim. I'm tired of being the one that never has enough money. I'm tired of being the one that's always in too much pain to be successful. I'm tired of it. There is a comfort that comes after you've lost everything. It's the comfort that that which I have feared has come. It's here. It can't get any worse than this. I'm on the bottom. My marriage has fallen apart. I've got nothing else to lose. I'm as low as I can go. There's a comfort devil. I've lost everything. There's only one way I can go from here, and that is up. You can't threaten me anymore, devil. You can't can't control me anymore with fear. You can't damage me anymore that I've already been damaged. I've already lost everything. And you don't know, you don't know until you've been in the hog pen. You don't know until you've been standing there. 
your eye is bloodied, your lip is bruised, your ear is bleeding, and you say, devil, this is as low as I can go. I will come back from this. I will come back from this bankruptcy. I will come back from this divorce. I will come back from this failure. I will come back from this sickness. I will recover. I will pursue. I will recover everything that the devil has stole from me. Y'all can make me work for my money today. Oh, I'm getting paid for this. It's good preaching. I better get paid twice as much. I was preaching about a comeback in a church between the East Coast and the West Coast, between Canada and Mexico one day. And, uh, I looked down, and I said, and, and this guy, people were responding, clapping their hands. I'm on the bottom, but I'm coming up. I don't have to stay. I even had a B3 organ behind me, so I had, I had the black man coming out and at me. Wow, I'm coming back. Y'all like, what's a B3? A B3 is an organ. Elder Ben, come, come here. Come here. My man knows what hooping is. Is that right? You have a, you, uh, is that right? Well, at home, I got, a, I got about a five-foot-two black boy that sits on that organ, and when I get to preaching like this, he starts hooping with me. And I put, put my thumb up back there, and he changes keys, and I'll go up and say, oh, take me up a little higher. Oh, I'm coming back from this. I, you know what I'm talking about? These, these Mexican and white folk, they don't know anything about all that. But I looked down there and I saw this young man shouting down the aisle. <laughs> Everybody else was on their feet. There were about 600 people in the house, but he didn't care. He didn't care. He didn't have any pride left. You know why? His self-esteem had been gone. You know why? Because he was a convicted child molester. He had been in prison for 10 years because he had molested a child. But you want to know something? He was hungry. He was hungry for change. He was hungry for, for to better his life. It didn't matter. Oh, it's tight in here right now. I said that to tell you this. I don't care what you walked in here as. I don't care what your identity is. I don't care who you are. I don't care how bad your mistake is. You can come back. You can come back. You don't have to stay on the bottom. You don't have to stay in the dregs of society. You can come back from your trouble. Those of you standing, stay standing. We're going to preach the cool folks out in a minute. I told you that to tell you this. And I need some hungry folks in the house today. Maybe your problems 
or because of you. Maybe you got yourself in the mess. But David said, if I ascend up into heaven, oh, I feel like preaching right now. You are there. But if I make my bed in hell, hell I'm Shandahaya. You are there. We've all heard the term. If you, if you make your bed, you've got to sleep in it. I preach it to some folks that have made your bed in hell. It is because of your bad choices. It is because of your bad decisions. It is because of your behaviors that you lost everything. That you're in the predicament that you're in right now. But I came from Fort Wayne to tell you, it doesn't matter if you got yourself there or if somebody else got you there. You're not staying there. You're coming back. You're coming back. You're going to recover it all. You're going to recover everything that the devil stole. Stay standing. I'm telling you, there is nothing as dangerous as a person that's making a comeback. I wish I had a preaching church today. I really do. I wish I had a church that knew how to preach with a preacher. You got to know that there's nothing as dangerous as somebody that's on their way back. There's nothing as dangerous as somebody that's making a comeback. You've never fought anybody until you fought somebody that doesn't have anything to lose. You've never fought anybody until you fought somebody that has lost everything. You've never walked up to punch somebody until you walked up to somebody that said, I ain't got nothing to lose. Come at me, bro. I've come to tell you, you've got to have that attitude with the devil today. You've already taken it all. I got nothing else to lose, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm not going to stay here, but I will recover. already been embarrassed but I'm coming back I've already been talked about but I'm coming back my reputation is already ruined but I'm coming back you can't say anything about me that hasn't already been said. You can't make a threat against me that hasn't already been made. You can't mount an attack against me that hasn't already been mounted. I'm gonna expose my heart. I will be broken. I will repent and I will come back. I'll be back on top. I will make it. Touch somebody and tell them you can recover. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Is this mic on?
at somebody and tell them you can recover. Touch somebody at the else and tell them you're coming back. You're coming back. You're coming back. I'm coming back. You know why? Because I know he's a wheel in the middle of the wheel. You know why? Because I know he's a bridge over troubled water. You know why? I know that trouble don't last always. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm not staying here, but I will recover. I will recover. I will recover. says that Job's comeback started when he prayed for his friends. You see, Job had a problem. He had a problem with the ministry of his interior. That's what I like to call it. Your interior ministry. Your friends. Who's speaking into your life? Oh, I got a whole lot more to preach. We'll do that next time. But Job's friends they were giving him bad advice. Job, this God you're always talking about. Job, why don't you curse God? And die. I want to preach the next ingredient of a comeback. We've talked about repentance. We've talked about brokenness. We've talked about exposing your heart. We've talked about doing away with the victim mentality. So let me close with this. The next ingredient of a comeback is you've got to pick better friends. You can't be hanging around with folks all the time that are playing into your victim mentality. Oh, I wish I wish I could preach. I, girl, I wish I had time to work this thing out today. But you've got to pick people that speak life into you. You've got to pick some ride or die friends. I saw... I saw a, 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 a cartoon the other day, or, or a picture. I don't, I don't know what they call those things now, but it was it was two two guys sitting in a jail cell, and the caption said, "A true friend will come bail you out of jail, but your best friend will look at you and say, boy, that was fun.' You get it." Your best friend sitting in jail with you. 
My point is, you need some ride or die friends. Some friends that after you've lost your coat, some friends that after you've lost your position, some friends that after you've been talked about and you've lost your reputation, they're still going to have your back. They're still going to fight for you. They're still going to defend you. I've got good news for you. You've walked into the church of the living God and we've got your back, honey. It doesn't matter who says what about you. It doesn't matter how bad you failed God. We will help you back. Preaching to some in this room, I ain't, I ain't gonna look that way. I ain't gonna look. I'm preaching to some folks in here. You need to be less worried about how loud the sound is right now and more worried about your victim mentality that's keeping you from coming back. You know, the nice thing about being somebody like me, I've been through a divorce. I lost my career, I lost my job, lost my future. You know what the nice thing about me, Brother Steele, is? You can't do anything to me or say anything about me that hasn't already been done or said. So that means I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want. The fact of the matter is, I'm not going to placate the thing, the spirit that is keeping you from coming back. You need some friends, Brother Ulysses? Come here. Come on up here, up here, fast, quickly, quickly. Quit acting so cool. You need some friends that when you start whining to them about the same thing you've been whining about for 37 years, they'll look you in the whites of the eyes and say, look, I love you, but shut your mouth. That is not you. That is not who God intended you for, for you to be. That is not your purpose in life. It's time for you to bury the past and be everything that God called you to be. I've come to preach to somebody. You're not going to walk out of here the same way you came in, but come to this altar right now. Come on, run to this altar, run to this altar, run to this altar. If you're ready for a comeback, run to this altar and say, I won't stay, but I will recover all. I will recover all. I will.
just a second. Speaking of friends, you will have two categories of people when you're on the bottom, Elder Ben. You'll have two categories of people that'll come to you, Eric. They'll say, they'll all ask this question, but they're broken up in two categories. Here's the question they'll ask. After you've lost everything, you've lost everything, you're on the bottom. They'll, let, they'll meet you and start. They want to have coffee. Oh, yeah, I've been there. They'll say, hey, hey, bro, can we go grab coffee? I just want to talk about some things. And immediately, because your business has been on public blast, you're just like, okay, I, I know what this is about. But the devil, oh, they'll ask you this. With genuine or faux genuine concern, furrow their brow. Get this real, real serious look on their face. And they'll say, well, bro, what are you going to do now? But they still have half. They've looked at me and said, sitting across the table, well, what are you going to do now? First of all, let's get this settled. What the, do you mean, what am I going to do now? I'm a child of the king. When he called me, it was his voice I heard and not yours. So my future is still intact. Number one, they'll be genuinely concerned about, about you. They'll want to know what you're going to do. Or number two, they represent a contingency of people. <laughs> they represent a contingency of people. And they're trying to send a message to you that they think you're finished. And it's in those moments, I'm going somewhere with this right now and I'm done. It is in those moments when you're pondering your future function. What am I going to do for the future? I've lost everything. What am I going to do for the future? Today, you're not going to know. You're not going to know how you're going to get it back. You're not going to know what it's going to look like. You're not going to know how it's going to unfold. But here's what you have to do starting today in this altar. You have to do this right here. You have to think hope. You have to live hope. And you have to give grace. So today, while you're in this altar, I want you to lift your hands all over this place, all over this place. Lift your hands. And right now, I want you to verbally thank God for hope. I want you to thank him for grace. And I want you to make a decision that I will move forward. 
I am broken. I will expose my heart. I will not pretend I have my act together. I will not play the victim mentality one more day, but I will think hope. I will live hope, and I will give grace. I will think hope. I will live hope, and I will give grace. Come on, say it out loud. I will think hope. I will live hope, and I will give grace. Come on, scream it right now. I will think hope. I will live hope, and I will give grace. Come on, victory. we've celebrated God is moving on so many people here today but right now right now every head bowed every eye closed as we're closing for recovery to happen is not going to be in the shout of a Sunday morning service. And it is not going to be in the exuberance of a worship team helping us stay encouraged. But it is going to be in the everyday choice. Listen to me carefully. That I will expose my heart to the Master. I will let him shine his light into every dark place. I will let him search my heart. If there be any wicked way in me, clean my heart, oh God. I will live a life of brokenness where it's not my will 
but my heart is consistently broken before him. And finally, I will live a daily life of repentance. Every day, I will examine myself and say, Did I contri- am I contributing to my poor marriage? Am I contributing to my poor finances? How am I contributing to my failing career? It is the hard, cold, hard look that we have to take at ourselves every day. And say, what am I doing? How can I accept responsibility? Some other time we'll talk about blame and responsibility and transformation that can, that can take place through the acceptance of responsibility and the faith and the grace of our Savior. But today, today, I ask myself, what can I repent of today in this altar before I leave? What can I ask forgiveness about today? When I go home, who do I need to call Who do I need to text? When I go to work tomorrow, who do I need to approach? When I go to my next family gathering, who do I need to talk to? How can I mend relationships? Not waiting for someone else to fix your problems, but what can I do? What can I do? This is not the fun part of Christianity, but it is the responsible part. So as they sing softly before we go, I want us to repent. I want us to turn. I want us to expose our desperately wicked hearts. Because remember Jeremiah said, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You don't even know your own heart. So today before we go, we're going to give it to the Master. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become The glory of your goodness, let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness,
today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. What a powerful and insightful word. A lot of times when we think of healing, we think of uh, God stepping in and uh, just touching us and healing us and us just walking out and um, not dealing with the issue or the problem anymore, but I want to tell you that um, oftentimes healing and health requires us to change. Uh, if you have uh, uh, sickness or illness that's based on your decisions and your choices, uh, I, I think it's irresponsible for us to just say, okay, God, heal it, and then I'm going to continue to make bad choices in terms of my health and just expect that maybe you could come and heal me again. But the reality is what we've heard today is our part in the healing process is there's got to be a turning around. Amen? There's got to be a change of direction. And in this inner healing that God's doing in our lives, it's a daily decision. Amen? Good health is not a one-time choice. Good health is a daily decision. And spiritual health and, and uh, uh, inter interior health and uh, emotional health is about deciding every day that I'm going to live hopeful. And I'm going to not, not be a victim, but I'm going to live victorious. And I'm thankful for the word of the Lord today. Amen. And if you'll receive it and apply it into your spirit and put it into practice. I wonder what would happen if every day this week when you woke up, you went and walked in front of the mirror and said, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to let this depress me anymore. I refuse to let what happened last year or uh, two years ago affect how I'm going to live my life today. I'm an overcomer. I am victorious. I, I don't think it'd take too long. I think maybe about four or five days into it, you would start feeling the power of healing happening in your life, in your mindset. Amen. 
I know it hurt. I know it was a difficult situation. But I'm not going to let that situation control me today. I'm choosing to live hopeful. I'm choosing to speak hope. And I'm choosing to be an overcomer. Amen. Put your hands together if you believe that you can do your part. You can do your part in your healing. Come on, let's put our hands together and thank God for his part. Hallelujah. Woo, praise God. Amen. If you're a guest with us here today, I'd love to meet you before you leave. We'll be out there in the back. You can come right into the room there and grab a water and a snack. But what I'd like for you to do right now is uh, I want you to look somebody, turn around, look, do this to two or three people. Look them right in the eye, and I want you to say, I'm coming back. coming back. I'm not going to stay down. I'm on the comeback trail. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord Jesus.